Hello, Pacers fans, and welcome into another edition of the Sideline Guys, powered by Gainbridge, alongside Jeremiah Johnson, who is joining us from Miami here this morning. I'm Pat Boylan. We are recording this on a Wednesday. Oftentimes, we talk to you on Tuesday. If there's a Wednesday game, we do some previewing of it. We probably won't spend a ton of time on Pacers and Heat because we know a lot of you might not get to this until Pacers and Heat is over but still a fair amount to talk about the Pacers have had recent stretches of three days off and two days off so they've had some time to practice JJ which they don't always get they've got a shoot around right now which they don't always get and obviously the prevailing storyline is Tyrese Halliburton's return he came back for Thursday Friday and Sunday's games I think overall a lot to like from his performance and and maybe on balance of how the team looked save the Sunday matchup Um, But overall, what were your takeaways, I guess, of the last week? And I should point out, uh, last week we got to talk with Miles, and it was uh, Miles just after his extension. We appreciated talking to him. The week before, we had Mark Boyle fresh off his 3,000th game. So this is uh, the first kind of normal, if you will, podcast that we've had in a few weeks. And the week prior to that, I think I joined Eddie Gill, correct? Oh, good call. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, been, it's about been about a month, month since yeah. uh, I've been able to spend quality time with you via Teams chat. <laughs> so uh, I, I that is the best back. kind of quality time is over Teams chat. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I feel like there is a lot to talk about, but we probably should be careful to not talk about too many specifics. As you said, I find myself uh, you know, scrolling through my podcast uh, subscriptions and things can change so quickly. And I don't. You know, this isn't any inside information, but this is a week of change in the NBA. And so you never really know what you're saying, whether it will last the next couple of days. But um, the trade deadline is something that is a fluid situation. And so we'll see if that affects this team. I, I'm going to go out on a limb to say it will not affect them as much as it did last season. But the key acquisition, we're coming up on either today or tomorrow, maybe one year since the Trade with Sacramento, so I feel like we should almost say happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, very true. And uh, so, you know, Tyrese Halliburton coming back does change everything. And if I think back to that three games in four days stretch of Lakers, Kings, Cavaliers, we knew it was going to be challenging just from a record perspective, from a sense of urgency of the opponents, and just high-profile games. And I was, you know secretly hoping that they could have figured out a way to win two of those three games to launch them into this final five game stretch before the all-star break. The Pacers did win just one of the three. And, you know, the Cavaliers game was not uh, a good game by any stretch of the imagination. You'd like to think that you could have pulled out the Lakers game, um, a play here, a play there, obviously, and it is a win. And so what you got was one win in three and you're still in a stretch of of games about in the last month where it's been difficult to find success and it's been um, impossible to win away from Gamebridge Fieldhouse. And that's where the Pacers are right now. Their last win on the road was before Christmas in Miami when the building they will play in had a different name. <laughs> I mean, it, FTX Arena was the 43-point explosion from Tyrese Halliburton and part of that two-game stretch with a win at Boston, and then a win at Miami, one of the best two-game road trips in recent memory. I don't know that you could have a better one. And since then, the Pacers have been unable to win on the road. And many of those games have been without Tyrese Halliburton. And if I just think back to the difference when he's on the court and when he's even on the bench, uh, we saw that 
in the last three games. And I, I did ask Tyrese after the game Friday how hard it was watching when in that Kings game, game in the second half, the lead was slipping away. And I thought he was very appropriate in saying the bench has been good all season long. And and let's go back before Christmas. You know, there were a lot of times the starters would get off to slow starts and the bench would come in and get the lead back or outscore the opposition. And so it's not fair to say this team can't play without Tyrese Halliburton on the court. But we just saw a different energy in the last three games with Halliburton playing. And that's with him playing after not playing for three plus weeks. Maybe right. not quite 100% still dealing with the effects of the elbow brace, the J.J. Watt brace, as he referred to it uh, after practice on Monday. And so I think you can expect even more in this game against the Heat, although you'll expect a concerted effort from Miami to take away what Tyrese does best. There have been two completely different games, Tyrese Halliburton against the Heat, at least of the last two, you think, to uh, you know, struggling at home, really locking him down, and then you know, having a fantastic game here in Miami. And so I'll be interested to see what happens, but I'm really looking forward to this next five-game stretch. Let's just kind of think big picture, Pat. We do this occasionally on this podcast. You've got the Heat. You're in a stretch of three games and four nights. Again, you've got the Heat. You've got the Suns at Wizards. And then you come home and you've got Jazz and Bulls. And this isn't the most difficult five-game stretch on the schedule, but I think it's maybe the one of the most important because after the All-Star break, just 22 games remain. A lot of those are on the road. And if you're looking at standings, you've got to start making up some ground right now. And if you don't do it now, it's it gets harder and harder to make up more ground with less games on the schedule. It's just simple math. And so I think it's a really important game tonight. If the Pacers do not win against the Heat and you're listening to this on Friday, it doesn't mean don't pay attention or you're listening on Thursday, don't pay attention Friday and Saturday. I'm just going to say win three of the next five and at least put yourself in a position to make that post-All-Star break surge. Um, and if you don't, I, it's going to be really difficult. Yeah, I think these next five, that's kind of the point I was going with before you said it. I think these next five are going to be intriguing for a couple of reasons. One of them is what you just said, uh, the standings. And I think it, I think the way the NBA schedule works, and especially this year, I'd have to go back and count, and I really don't care that much to do that. But I'm pretty sure we are about as far through a season in terms of games played before we hit the All-Star break, once we do hit it in a week, uh, that the Pacers have ever had. They'll be 60 games in. So uh, you know, I, I remember saying it's not really the halfway point. It's, it's kind of <laughs> like the two thirds mark. Well, maybe it's the three quarters it's, mark. It's almost know? three fourths. Exactly. It's basically there. And so I think it's easy to just kind of toss the all star break into, OK, you're a little over halfway through the year. No, you get back and you hit the home stretch. You've got like five days in February when you come back and then you've only got one full month. And then you've got a little over a week in April, which by that point, uh, you know, it, things could be in a very different position. So absolutely, I do think you can look at these matchups and consider the significance of the standings in those five. You've got the Wizards and the Bulls. Well, right now, as you and I are talking preheat game, the Pacers sit in 10th. They are a game and a half behind Chicago, who is in ninth. And they are in a three-way tie with Toronto and Washington 
four tenth. The Pacers have that tiebreaker right now. So you're playing a team that's tied with you. The Raptors are playing better. We'll see if that holds. We'll see if their team even looks the same here in a couple of days. Uh, and Chicago, who's right in front of you, and you just beat, and you have a chance to beat for the second time, and you know perhaps start to vault yourself back up the standings. Or if you don't take care of business, the opposite could be very true. I mean, right now you're in tenth and in the final play-in spot. But if you were to have a bad couple of weeks, all of a sudden you could be looking at yourself in 12th. And not only do you have games to catch up, but you've also got a couple of teams in front of you, which will be challenging. And Toronto and Washington, despite their struggles this year, are teams with a lot of veterans on their team, at least right now. So I think that part is fascinating. I absolutely think it's easy to get lulled into a false sense of security because of where we are in the schedule. We're going to be about three-fourths of the way through the year by the time the All-Star break hits. And the other is because, and so much of this has to do with the opponent. And so much of it has to do with the opponent's defense. Like Sacramento uh, has been one of the best road defenses in the league, which is one of the most random stats. I think if you told me at the beginning of the year the Kings would be one of the best road defenses in the league, I wouldn't have believed you. But that's where they are. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers have been, or at least right now, are the best defense in the NBA. And we know the Lakers just aren't performing at that level, as evidenced by a game where LeBron James went nuts and broke the scoring record, and they still lost at home to the Thunder. So part of this, maybe even a lot of it, just has to do with the quality and the caliber of opponent in the building. But in terms of Halliburton's return, like the first thing you're looking for is how does he look? Is he about back to what you expected? And then does the team have this light switch flip dynamic, which they were playing incredibly well. They were in sixth. They weren't even in the play-in tournament when he got hurt. Uh, And then the light switch flipped, and they lost 10 of 11. And then could the light switch flip back on? And could they just instantly get back to that point? Well, for three quarters, it was looking like absolutely that is the case. You know, they were up by double digits at halftime in the Lakers game, up by double digits going into the third. We know what happened in the fourth quarter. The Pacers scored just 15 points. The free throw disparity was 16-0. I mean, it was it was heavily discussed. You then go and play Sacramento, a team who's been playing really well, albeit, yes, without De'Aaron Fox, you get a win there. So overall, uh, you're feeling pretty good about the version of this team with Tyrese Halliburton back in, I think. You have the one anomaly of a quarter. Uh, definitely disappointing, I think, not to go into that Cleveland game at two and zero. I agreed with you. I thought two and one was a good goal for that trio of games. Uh, and then, you know, the Cavaliers game, I don't want to say you never were in it because you were for a quarter. But I just remember being concerned when the game was tight in the second quarter and Donovan Mitchell hadn't really done anything yet. And it's well, either you're going to have to keep him doing that for the rest of the game or you're going to have to accelerate something of your own uh, because this guy's too good to be zero of six with zero points midway through the quarter. He got going and that game turned into, uh, I think it was just the second double digit loss at home in a game where Halliburton has played. And that speaks to their consistency at home. So a little disappointed to go one and two, I think. Um, But overall, big picture, I think the takeaway, at least for me, nudged on the positive side. And I'd be curious your thoughts here on the positive side of how Halliburton and the team looked in general. Sunday was obviously uh, nowhere near where they wanted to look. But 
I think I saw enough in those first two games to be optimistic of what the this version of this team can do if Halliburton is on the floor. But that's exactly why I'm fascinated here for these next five, because I'm not ultra confident in it yet. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic in it right now. And you've got, as you noted, a slew of different teams coming up. The Heat, another very good defensive team. They enter the um, the day that we're talking right now, fifth in defense, and you're playing in Miami. You know they'll have a chip on their shoulder because of how last game went. And right now Miami is in a tie for New York with the sixth spot in the East. So a ton of motivation on their side. Phoenix is going to potentially have Devin Booker back. The Wizards are right with the Pacers. The Jazz are kind of the Pacers of the West, and then the Bulls, we just talked about them. So intriguing opponents coming up, intriguing for the standings, and I think intriguing because I I believe a week from today, um, or maybe eight days from today, once you get through that Wednesday game, you'll have a much better read on, on what this team is capable of with Tyrese Halliburton back and healthy. We can be guilty of watching... Tyrese Halliburton run the offense or run the fast break and and think of success related to the number of points that you score. But to me, over the next week and over the final, where are we at? 27 games of this season, success will be determined by how well the Pacers are able to defend. And we saw a real improvement, I think, against the Lakers and Kings. And, you know, you almost must put an asterisk there with Sacramento. De'Aaron Fox is such an important part of what they do and he was not available, but it was impressive to see the way the Pacers came out and defended against the Kings in that first half. I remember the huddle watching Jenny Busick point to the scoreboard, and it's like it's it's almost like something I would do if I were coaching is to give a little <laughs> carrot out there to say, you know, shoot for this short-term goal. Look at the scoreboard. She pointed at it and said, can we keep them under 50 in the first half. And and that would be considered a real accomplishment and put you in a good position to then go on and close the game out. And that's exactly what they did. So what I'm watching in Miami, home against the Suns and against the Wizards, is how this team comes out and defends, um, really extends, provides real pressure, defends without fouling, but can get real physical into opponents and and keep these games to where it's so difficult to do but as I talked with Rick Carlisle before the game against Cleveland you want it to be a grinded out game on one side and a fast-paced game on the other side it's like obviously you don't you don't want to play a a high-scoring game meaning you don't want to allow 120 points if you win 125 to 120 you know I think you're okay with it because that may be the kind of pace the Pacers want to play But in general, you want to be stingy on the defensive end. And so uh, I do think that they are healthy. There's no reason why they can't run guys in and out. And that's the biggest thing is you get when you get tired, I think mentally you can, you know, let up a little on the defensive end. Well, you can't do that. And so I do think that over the last few games, I've seen Rick Carlisle. It does seem like move guys in and out a little quicker. You had to do that a little bit with Tice just because he was coming back. To, to conditioning and to full health. And even the same with Tyrese Halliburton. You didn't want to stretch him as much um, because he had not played in, in nearly a month. And so I'm really going to be watching the defensive end of the floor. Miami tends to play maybe a little bit like the Cavaliers. So they might want mm-hmm. a game to be 100 to 95. And that's where you want to push at every opportunity. The ball goes out of bounds. 
look at Tyrese. He's going to be clapping his hands. He wants to go. He wants to run. But you've still got to get back and really lock down defensively on one and the four. So it's really hard to have that yin and yang and to be able to do that. But that's the key for this team right now. I don't think they can – their half-court offense is not you know, good enough against elite defensive teams to just run a set, um, find an open shot, and, and to consistently, I think, win games 100 to, to 97. I think they've got to get those fast break points. They've got to get those easy opportunities. And then they've got to extend defensively with, with some pressure, not necessarily cause turnovers, but cause bad shots and the turnovers then will take care of themselves. Yeah, it's tough to get sort of a pace indication in game to game, like one game snippets or bites, but it would be really interesting. And you can do this in a variety of ways. You could look at field goal attempts, but that doesn't always account for if you have a game with a ton of free throws, like those are possessions too. What I'm getting at, it it would be really interesting to rank the Pacers top half of their games in terms of the pace that the game was played at. And then the bottom half of their games and just see the record, because at least the eye test suggests exactly what you are saying. It's it's not to say that the Pacers can't win uh, a half court style of game. In fact, I think they have uh, the game. I don't know if it still is the game this year, but at least for a while, uh, the Pacers won the lowest scoring game in the NBA all season. That was much earlier um, in the year. And 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 they were able to win that. But on the other hand, the general flow of this season has seemed like when when what you're talking about when Halliburton is getting the ball quickly up the floor when it's in transition I mean you look at all the stats the fast break points and points off turnovers and stuff like that when they're up the Pacers win so it's it's really not um, you know exactly a secret on on where the Pacers can have success and so I do think it makes the Miami game interesting because I do think it's sort of like Cleveland part two now Miami might not have the skill, especially at the guard position. Um, they don't have anybody playing, in, in my opinion, like Mitchell or Garland. Um, Butler's a good player, but he's not really that style of player, nor, uh, in my opinion, is he at that caliber. But you're also on the road. Um, and so I do think it's an interesting kind of similar test that they'll have to face. A team that wants to play slower, a team that wants you in the half court, and a team that when they get you in the half court is pretty good defensively. So I think it'll be a good test. Uh, We're coming right off of that Cleveland game where you didn't play very well. And it's interesting because the Pacers have played Cleveland a couple of times this year. And the previous couple of times they ran up and down the floor and they did have a ton of (laughs) success. And one of the games, I think their high scoring game of the year was against the Cavs. And they had another uh, fairly high-scoring game where things kind of fell apart in the fourth quarter in Cleveland, but for good chunks of that game, were that team. So I, I do I agree with you. I think that's a massive key here: is can they get into that version of that team? And you know, I've, I have asked I have said question to Iron Neesmith in the locker room. Um, I think Andrew Nemhard gave the same answer: like, how do you get into that version of that team? And this is clearly something that Rick Carlisle is hammering home because all these guys have the same answers. Now, those two are more defensively minded than maybe your average NBA player. But, you know, they talk about how it has to begin on the defensive end, which is kind of full circle to this mini point that you were talking about, which is if you want to run, you can't be pulling the ball out of your hoop. And I think Rick Carlisle said something along the lines of the fact that if the other team's at the foul line, like that is the best possible way when you're at the foul line then the next possession to have your defense set 
is when you were shooting free throws on the previous possession. And so uh, defensively probably does tell the story of this team over the next five games, but just how much it impacts it offensively. Um, I think it's really significant. And, and to kind of transition here, one thing I always struggle <clears throat> with is when we have news that comes maybe a day or two after a podcast comes out. But I do feel like uh, while this is kind of old hat at this point, it's worth bringing up. It's worth discussing because it is really significant. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton getting named to the all-star team. And and frankly, uh, our podcast with Miles, I think, did it come out before the the Nemhard and, uh, and Matherin news? I can't remember, but even if it didn't, we didn't have a ton of time to talk about it. So let's go there right now. Um, you, you know, I, I think most people here thought there was a better than 50-50 chance, maybe even a better than 75-25 chance that Halliburton was going to make it, but it wasn't a sure thing. I admittedly was a little nervous that the couple of weeks that he missed just recently, the recency bias there would hurt him. Um, but to what he's meant to the – like if there was no better example of why this guy is an all-star, it might have been watching the Pacers the two weeks without him and obviously – um, a, a very significant moment in his career, especially with, you know, some of the back and forth that Halliburton has had this year. And this being his first full season in Indiana to get that honor as young as he is at 22 is, is I think, really special. That's a good point. I almost forgot that it was just Thursday that we found out. We've sort of kind of been assuming and hoping that Tyrese Halliburton would be an all-star. And it does go to show a lot can happen over the course of a week. So I think it was Tuesday. We recorded that podcast with Miles Turner on Monday. On Tuesday, we found out that uh, Andrew Nemhard and Benedict Matherin were headed to the Rising Stars game, the Jordan Rising Stars game. And then it was Thursday, uh, really right before tip-off. And just as a little behind the curtain perspective on how our night went. We ran some some stories in Pacers Live pregame with some some comments from Tyrese as to what it would mean if he made the All-Star team and that was on the air at about probably 6:53 and then the segment that's on television just prior to uh tip-off is uh, is always recorded. And I'm able to to go downstairs and live you know either get a final drink or just kind of get ready to go for the 710 tip off and went down to the press room and just watched one of the monitors which had tv tnt on the broadcast um and i didn't have any sound on but i was watching as they were opening the envelopes revealing the starters and it was random it, so i think there were what two backcourt players three front court and then two wild cards two five two seven reserves correct that sounds right, but I will admit I, don't even I was know at watching this point, it. Did they did they say who the the wild cards were? Because it, they didn't that, reveal them in that order. All of that totally unclear to me. I was watching <laughs> on PR ahead uh, of PR Mike Preston's monitor from a row behind, so I, I didn't get any audio. I was just watching the video feed and saw him last, and it's still not totally apparent to me if that had anything to do with how the voting went. No, I, I don't actually. I'm pretty confident because it didn't seem like there was any set order and they were almost pulling envelopes out of a hat, which kept it completely random. So some would say he was the last envelope opened or the last name on the screen, but I don't think that meant he was the final choice at right. all. But it did, it did cause some concern. And when you <laughs> saw, I think when I saw Drew Holiday, it was when I, I thought, man, he, he might not make it. And uh, Bob Kravitz was in the, the press room and, 
And in the office in the press room, Chrissy Myers was was in the back. And I can tell you for a fact, I don't think she knew because I heard some applause and some emotion. And I don't think anybody knew for sure. Now, Tyrese Halliburton apparently had been informed from Rick Carlisle and Kevin Pritchard just before going on to the court. So I was looking at his reaction when they then showed a few minutes later in the in the arena in the arena after starting lineups had been introduced, they showed the clip of Shaq opening the envelope. So it was really cool kind of how this whole thing transpired. It doesn't seem like there have been too many years that the Pacers have played a game on a Thursday. They don't have a lot of Thursday games in general. The schedule's usually smaller on Thursdays than other days of the week. And those are the the national broadcasts with a few other uh, regional broadcast games. But so it was really it was unusual how the whole thing transpired and it will be something that I'll remember for a while. And I'm sure Tyrese Halliburton will remember as well. The only thing that I wanted was him to cap that off with a win and being able to interview him and talk to him about it on Thursday night. I did have a chance to get a comment on Friday and I know he was really gracious with the media on Thursday. It was such a kind of an emotional return game and a hard fought loss that he still put it in good perspective. And, and just think about this. The, to make an all-star team, there are only 12 spots. And every year it's it's kind of uh, in vogue to get on a, a soapbox nationally and complain about players that don't make the all-star team. It is really, really difficult. And there are always going to be some injury replacements. So it will trickle out a few days later. Some people who were left out end up getting to participate. But in your third NBA season, just think about this. Last season, Tyrese Halliburton went to the all-star game as part of the rising stars game. Yeah. And yeah. so it's, it's pretty difficult to make a regular all-star game in your first or second year, because they kind of have a game that's just made, made just for you. So you could make a case. This is the first real opportunity that he had to be in the all-star game and he made it and where he's at in his career, you can project many more still to come. But you don't take it you, – you cannot take that for granted either, and you need to appreciate that. And, and then think about what I mentioned earlier, just one year in a Pacers uniform, what all has transpired over this last year. It is worth taking a step back, savoring it, appreciating it. And also, to me, let's go to, to All-Star Weekend in Salt Lake City. The ability to have Benedict Matherin and Andrew Nemhard there, future pieces – future – I don't want to say pieces – future – players that are part of the future of this franchise with Tyrese Halliburton then playing. And I think he'll play well in that all-star game. You never really know how an all-star game is going to go, but can you imagine him thriving in a game that is a high scoring game, getting up and down, making some, the passes we see him make in a regular game. Think about how he'll play in an all-star game. And that's something I'll probably ask him about at some point in the next week to just preview what we'll see in Salt Lake City, but to have him there as well, rubbing shoulders with the best in the game. And I say this all the time before an All-Star game, to wave the Pacers flag, to be an ambassador for the Pacers. But to have those three guys there, I think is uh, is a really good thing. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's it, you're talking about at least of the rotational guys, you've got three of your, you know, the rotation's constantly changing, maybe worth the discussion, the rotation. And wink, four. wink, there may be another one there as well. Yeah, 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 <laughs> you're exactly right. So. Um, no, they're going to have terrific representation regardless uh, out in Salt Lake City. The, of course, all-star game before 
Uh, I'm, I'm going to actually knock on wood. The first All-Star game, the final All-Star game before we host it, because I think I've said that before, and then unfortunately, <laughs> you know, far bigger world events, and then COVID got in the way, and there was much more, uh, of course, that impacted that than just an All-Star game. But uh, still, I feel like we have been um, gearing up for the All-Star game for almost a decade now, so it'll be great to get it here. Uh, to kind of put the, into perspective here the season that Tyrese Halliburton is having, if he can hold on to averaging 20 points and 10 assists per game, he will be just, uh, well, I should say this. There have only been 12 guys that have done it previously. Now, of those 12, many have done it numerous times, but it really is a who's who. It's Oscar Robertson, it's Tiny Archibald, Isaiah Thomas, Magic Johnson, uh, Kevin Johnson, Tim Hardaway's done it, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden, John Wall one year, uh, LeBron James has done it. I, I think that hopefully gets to 12 um, but the number is only 12 guys that have done it before. Now, Halliburton is one of three guys doing it this year. So that would be a, a major anomaly history wise in terms of uh, you had 12 guy, 12 different players in history, not times, but different players in history that have done it. You might have three new guys joining that club this year alone. Trey Young, uh, Nikola Jokic and of course, Halliburton are all a part of this. Halliburton right now at 20.0 points and 10.3 assists. And Trey Young is at 10.0 assists. So, uh, and even Jokic is at 10.2 assists. So all three guys have work to do to remain on that list. Uh, but for Halliburton, he could be joining a club that includes just 12 players in league history. And you got to be careful when you do the age stats, because you're talking about eras where in some cases guys could only start to jump to the NBA at 22 or so years old, but not insignificant to note. I don't know exactly where they would fall in terms of their exact age. I'm talking like year and day old, uh, but it's been done three times by a 22 year old uh, Isaiah Thomas, Kevin Johnson and, and Chris Paul each did it. And uh, Halliburton could join that club as the other, another 22 year old to do it. Uh, but point of said statistic is, I don't, I don't think we're at the point where any Pacers fan is taking this for granted. So by no means do I want to do that. As you noted, the trade happened, uh, depending on your perspective, uh, whether you go like days from the all-star or the trade deadline or days from uh, the actual date of the year, uh, we're right about a year when that, since that trade happened. So I don't think anybody is taking anything Tyrese Halliburton has done for granted, but I just want to point out like he 20 and 10 is just really rare and only mostly, you know, Kevin Johnson, there are a couple names in there that you could debate are superstars and stuff like that, but it tends to be something that only superstars and legends of the game have done throughout their career. Um, he's having a obviously terrific season, but the one, one area that, kind of bugs me a little bit is when I feel like the, we we have seen maybe the double double and the triple double stat um, people kind of realize that maybe it's not the end all be all stat when somebody like Russell Westbrook who's, who's a good player this isn't a um, denigrate Russell Westbrook podcast but when he's the guy that has the most triple doubles you maybe start to go okay maybe there are better ways uh, to evaluate a stat like that um, but I don't like it when just total double doubles get brought up because it is far easier to get 10 rebounds in a game than it is to get 10 assists in a game. Like some years you will go where nobody in the NBA averages 10 assists. Whereas there's usually five, six, seven, eight guys who average double digit rebounds. 
that said, he's had a terrific season so far. He's had every version of the season that you've wanted to see, or at least I wanted to see going into the year. Could he take that next step? Um, could he be the type of player that I, I really had no question that he would be one of the better, if not best passers in the league. And he's obviously been that, but could he take two, three, four more shots per game, keep his efficiency up while doing that so far? He absolutely has. And, you know, when you look at the Pacers 365 days ago, it's a question. If you listen to the podcast with miles, I asked miles about it. I mean, it's just amazing to think how much has changed in exactly a year's time. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton either wasn't here or was on a flight here or maybe had just done his introductory press conference this time last year. Buddy healed not by me, but was kind of viewed by many as a throw in in that trade. And he's been at times the Pacers second best scorer this year. And when you look at where this team was, it was in a frustrating. We are stuck. We are not anywhere near as good as we need to be. And we have a bunch of guys in their prime. So it's not like anybody's going to take a big jump from here on out. They have gone from stuck and in a frustrating spot to having one of the top young dynamic players in the NBA. And one thing that Kevin Pritchard said in an interview that I did with him that aired on Valley, he said at one point uh, Halliburton was the seventh best player in the NBA before the injury. I think he was ninth um, by, by a metric that he used. He has referenced, you know, obviously we have tons of analytics people. It's, it's possible that he's also looking at or just the analytics numbers agree because that's pretty much in line with the 538 uh, statistical model of individual you know there's all of these all-encompassing stats that try to take everything a player does and then spit them out in an order of how valuable they've been this year I don't know if he's using that we obviously have a, a, a staff full of analytics people but I will say the 538 numbers have fallen in line with a couple of those numbers that he's referenced maybe a good question for him um, the next time we get to chat would just be exactly how um, he fought, he looks at those numbers and how the analytics guys look at those numbers. But I will say at least something that is open to the public that you can look at is the 538 Raptors statistic, which all of these are imperfect stats. But at one point had Halliburton as the seventh best player in the NBA and it had him ninth in, uh, before he got hurt in New York. So uh, it's too early. It's still too early to know what type of career this guy is going to have. But I think if you could imagine the arc of him turning into the next superstar type point guard going into this year. This is exactly the type of season that I would have wanted to see from him to be following that arc. And so I think every Pacers fan here knows the significance and, and just how impactful that trade was last year, as much as everybody loves Sabonis and hats off to Domas, by the way, who's a three-time all-star and, um, some some people might argue is the worst three-time All-Star of all time. If you know that reference, you know what I'm talking about. I, of course, don't feel that way. I say it tongue-in-cheek because it's it's a ridiculous comment that was made a couple of years ago about Sabonis. He's having a great year. Sacramento's having a great year. I, I find myself rooting for the Kings because of Domas. He's so easy to like. I also like you know just some of their other players, too, and I think they're a fun team to watch out West and they deserve to end that almost two decade long streak. And I hope they do. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that the Pacers franchise did a 180 on that trade day. And to see, you know, it, it kind of encapsulated by Tyrese making this all-star game, I think was, um, was special and, and really just impactful on the future of what can happen with him, what can happen with the Pacers. You know what I would love, Pat, this isn't the Tyrese Halliburton podcast, but I do want to think one of, Add one additional comment. I would love to have 
a video of the, the front office de debating, deliberating, negotiating in that deal because it was one of those deals that no one saw coming. It's, it wasn't the trending rumor um, or that you see on Twitter or something that was talked about on all the shows. It was one of those deals that caught everybody by surprise. And so I'd love to know the back and forth, how it all happened, whether there was another player involved and all of a sudden they could get who they wanted. But my favorite comment from your interview with Kevin Pritchard, uh, that one was good about seventh best player in the league. But the one that I shared on the broadcast as a takeaway after your interview aired was the fact that Kevin Pritchard said, we got our quarterback for the next seven to 10 years. And in football terms, with this being Super Bowl week, everyone knows the importance of a quarterback. Now you have a 53 man roster and, um, you have to have an outstanding quarterback. It's a little bit different in basketball with the point guard position, but I think the point is very valid that, you know, your point guard is really important in basketball and you can't just be a good player to be uh, a good quarterback. A good quarterback in football makes the right reads, you know, has a big arm, but is also your leader in basketball, the point guard or the quote unquote quarterback of the Pacers right now is Tyrese Halliburton. He, you know, excels on the court, he makes the right reads, he gets his teammate involved, teammates involved, and he's a great leader. So you, you almost check that box in the team building that started really in early February of last season. You, you, you're confident, and I think he's probably exceeded all expectations in the last year. And then something else that happened last week is you, um, at least for the next two seasons after this one, you lock up your five-man, who is really one of the most well-rounded centers I'm going to say in the game. Miles Turner is not an all-star, has not been an all-star yet, but I would say is in the upper echelon of centers. And he is as good of a two-way center to me um, as you'll find. Because think about, let's just say people who have won defensive player of the year or elite rim protectors. Let's, let's just point to Rudy Gobert. Can he shoot like Miles? No. Can he run the floor like Miles? No. I mean, he's really elite defensively. He can score around the basket. It's not worked spectacularly in Minnesota, and this isn't meant as a disparaging comment to um, to Rudy Gobert. The, the player that you'll see tonight is really one of the elite two-way players, I think, in Bam Adebayo. So he is really good. But can you make a list of a top, let's say, six or seven two-way centers in the league. Miles Turner is very much a part of that. If you're, if there are 30 NBA teams, you want one of those guys. So now you check that box off, and you continue to put pieces together. So in the next two seasons, you're able to really feel confident about your five-man group. Are they a complete team right now, the Pacers? No. Maybe there will be a move made in the next 30 hours as we record this podcast on Wednesday morning to Thursday afternoon. Maybe the moves will be made this summer. This is not a finished product right now, um, but I do. I'm very confident that moving forward, you've got that point guard, quote unquote, quarterback. And now, you know, in case and if any of you did not hear or watch the podcast with Miles Turner from last week, I don't think it's dated. I think it's still relevant. So if you're still listening at this point and you didn't get a chance to listen to that last week, I invite you to do so because you saw and heard just really what a a what a impactful person and how beneficial miles has been to the franchise. And I do think it, it was a really good step last week to get him locked up and also to, to see that ceremony and, and everything about it. I, I think was really good. And I look for continued production 
for Miles moving forward. You know, it's funny because as you saw, yes, you've seen all of the Miles Turner like trade rumors over the years. And, and of course, most of those uh, are either non-factual or deals that maybe never even got close to being done or any of that. But I, I find myself looking back at almost all of them saying, good thing those didn't happen um, because right. would you rather have X guy? I don't even want to go into the rumors in this podcast, but would you rather – at least in terms of all the names that I see on Twitter, I can't think of a single one where the Pacers would be definitively better off had one of those moves happen. I don't know that any guy in the NBA had his name in trade rumors for as long as Miles has. And, and you know, you can't control those. He'll be under contract. That doesn't mean he can't be traded in the future. Maybe they just keep coming. It's something out of his control, out of franchise control. But uh, still, I, I think that is is one thing that I found myself thinking back to is is I in hindsight am glad a lot of those deals did not end up happening because Miles has shown that Miles has shown that um, he can be the center that he talked about wanting to be and and I think you know watching him with Sabonis I think was really telling and and look you know th- it, we don't have to be so one laned here with with thoughts I mean. He wanted to be the center. He had nothing against Omas. They had a good relationship. You could see that when he came back. But guys want to be in the position where they feel like they can succeed the most. Um, you know, he was uh, he came out and was and was fairly blunt about that last year. And he ended up showing at least so far that he's been very right. And so, um, you know, you tip your cap to that. And I think, as you say here, and maybe as we round out the podcast, uh, we haven't done a mailbag in a while. I know if we asked for a mailbag this week, we would get 30 <laughs> questions and 29 exactly. of them Let's would be who the Pacers. Week, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 29 would be who, the, who are the Pacers trading for? Who are they trading? Um, if you are a longtime listener of this show, you know a couple of things. First of all, while JJ and I are oftentimes privy to some inside information, it's A, stuff that we can't share here, and B, that inside information also almost never has to do with who's going to get traded. We sit here, my Woj and Shams notifications are on. I got that Shams notification when the Kyrie trade was happening while we were at our dinner meeting and it buzzed on my phone immediately. And that's how I found out about it. It's how I found out about the Tyrese Halliburton trade. I remember where I was when that Woj uh, tweet came through. I even remember him um, kind of hilariously double naming, I think, Justin Holiday or Jeremy Lamb. Like the Pacers were trading one guy twice as he was firing that tweet out. So I say all that to say. In this realm, we don't know. This podcast is not a trade speculation podcast. It never will be. There are those uh, that will delve into that realm. And, uh, you know, a few of those guys and gals do a really good job with that. It's not this realm. That said, there's two things um, that I'm confident of. And you may be listening to this on Friday and and maybe these words, um, I'll end up eating them, but I really don't think I will. Um, There's two things I am confident about the trade deadline here as it approaches. One of those two things is, and and you just touched on it very briefly there um, as it relates to moves that could happen. I think Kevin Pritchard, ideally when he takes the next step with this team wants to do so in the off season. So I think he, he flat out said that on Monday, he said, I don't like making moves at the trade deadline if I don't have to, but there is that caveat. I'm sure they felt like they had to make that Tyrese Halliburton move now because if they didn't make it, would it be available in the summer? Who knows? And so that's an example of where, hey, you got to make that move strike, you know, while the iron's hot. But I think in general, his big picture plans involve movement in the offseason to get this team to the next level of where they need to be. 
But you're always watching. You're always listening. That doesn't mean they won't be probing. Who would have thought the Pacers would have been involved in that James Harden deal a couple of years ago um, when he went to Brooklyn? And trades like that, I think you're always keeping tabs on the market to know if you can enter into deals like that. But I do think if the Pacers make anything resembling a significant move, which if you had to ask me if they would, any sort of big time move, my gut here is no. We'll see. My gut here is no. But if any sort of significant move happens, I am confident that Pritchard and the front office will view it as the type of move that they had to act on now. That's not going to be available over the summer. And that leads me into my second point that I'm confident in. I think any move that gets made or doesn't get made, but certainly there will be some over the summer. So I'm talking here in the near future, not just as it relates to the trade deadline on Thursday. I think they will be with the big picture in mind. The next two, three, four, five years in mind, I would just be stunned if you saw the Pacers give up dra- assets like draft picks um, and and you know future assets that could help you to get a rental type player. I just don't think that's Kevin Pritchard's vision. I don't think that's what he's looking to do. I think there's still very much a big picture view in all of this. And so I think if the Pacers do make the next significant move that the Pacers make, whether it's before Thursday, whether it's over the summer, I am 99.9% sure that that move is going to be a player that they view fitting into the timeline of this group and a player that they view as being significant for what they are building. Because just because the Pacers are ahead of schedule here and maybe ahead of expectations here does not mean the goal that they're looking to achieve has changed by any stretch of the imagination. So trade deadline thoughts, those are my two. Anything to add to those, JJ? No, the thing that I'll be watching over the next week and then into the summer is the draft capital the Pacers have. You have your pick and you also have the Cavs pick and the Celtics pick. And unlike last season, uh, even though at this point last season, I was very confident the Pacers were going to get a Cavs pick in 2022. (laughs) They kept falling. They kept falling. I kept saying, don't worry about it. They're going to make the playoffs. And then lo and behold, they didn't make the playoffs. Um, And who knows if they would have made the playoffs, maybe you would have just turned around and drafted Andrew Nemhard with that first round pick anyways. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I think they really liked him. I think they really wanted him. And if that pick, um, you know, who knows if it was high teens, what they would have done with that pick. It doesn't really matter. It's water under the bridge at this point. But I do think it's going to be kind of difficult to to bring on three. And then I think there's a, a qualifier out there that if the Rockets end up with the worst record in the NBA, which would be the 31st pick, I think that becomes a Pacers pick as well. I could I could be wrong about that. So there's potentially four out of 31. You can't bring that many players on your roster. So I will be interested to see how, you know, Kevin Pritchard in the front office negotiate with those assets and what, you know, I'm okay calling uh, it's tough to call a player an asset or a piece. I, I, I got to get out of doing that because they're people, <laughs> but uh, um, the, you know, draft picks are assets and, and the Pacers do have a lot of assets for this draft. And we don't know where, Pacers are going to end up picking with their own selection. However, I do think the rebuild is currently sped up just a little bit. And what I mean by this is the 2024-2025 season is, to me, the one that fans could circle on their calendar saying that is where you're going to see this team maybe at its best. And you're looking to acquire players and put a roster together that can be, um, you know, 
let's say a championship contender, let's say in the Eastern Conference, a top four type of seat of team, you'll make you've made progress this season, you make progress next season, and that season after, which would be Tyrese Halliburton's fifth in the NBA, is the one I think you're pointing towards. And so anything that you do this week, anything you do this summer to me is with that season in mind and and you see where you're at. And so I think it's good to have maybe it's a season earlier than if you would have really asked people a year ago what when will this team be fully built? I think maybe it would have been the season after that, possibly. But I think they've gone uh, not necessarily skipped a step, but they've gone and fast forward a little bit over the last 12 months. And there's no reason to think they can't be at their very best um, a couple seasons from now. And so that is that is the lens I'm watching the trade deadline and also this summer. The moves that are possibly made is for that 2024-2025 season. It's tough for people to say, well, no, you can't forget about these games in, in March and April of 2023. I'm not forgetting about them. But remember, the, the plan was to, to to sort of reset the roster and the franchise and to rebuild in a point where you can compete for a championship. And to me, that might be the time frame that you're on right now. That's just a sideline guy chatting spitballing not anything coming from inside the ascension st vincent center but pat it's about time for shoot around to wrap up so i'll probably need to to wrap up here but it was good chatting with just you after we had some high quality guests the last few weeks likewise a good amount to talk about with the trade deadline hitting tyrese halliburton's return i think it'll be a fascinating five games coming up pacers.com slash tickets we are in a very home heavy stretch of schedule which go which is going to go through that first game out of the all-star break that first home game uh, and then the Pacers hit a very road-heavy stretch of schedule. So we had, I think, three straight sellouts, and we've had a bunch of sellouts lately. It's been a great environment. Again, Pacers.com slash tickets. would love to see you in the building. For Jeremiah Johnson, out in Miami, I'm Pat Boylan. We will talk to you next week on the Sideline Guys, powered by GameBridge.